I will. Extension of welcomes to everybody who's joining us online tonight, uh, also everybody who's in the audience, uh, including not only the participants for the next three days in the first Aspen Economic Security Summit, uh, which really does play off of a number of years of going deep on both issues of financial security and economic opportunity. Um, so thank you to the participants, but thank you also to Peter Wanders, to the Society of Fellows for the Aspen Institute, and specifically to the Vanguard Group and some of their guests that are here tonight. Uh, we have the opportunity here in Aspen sometimes to go beyond the folks who are involved in the dialogues that we're holding to engage with a broader community. Uh, and we're doing that two ways tonight, both online and here in the audience with, uh, with a broader mix of people. So, so welcome. Uh, we're so excited about launching the Economic Security Summit. The summit actually builds on um, four years of the financial security program running a financial security summit. And what we realized as we were doing this, and thank you so much to Ida for inviting me to participate in previous financial security summits, we realized these issues of work and wealth are really intertwined, that uh, families really experience uh, the changing nature of work and the challenge of earning an income, as well as the challenge of saving and building for a future, as um, very much part of their full economic lives. Too often in our policy conversations, however, we, we divide them up and we think of them as separately. And so we really wanted to have a bigger conversation where we bring the issues of work and wealth together and really think about what does it take to build economic security today. So we're so delighted to have you all here with us as we launch this summit. Yeah, some of this, and you might have heard this if you checked in online earlier, uh, but at the Aspen Institute overall, we really are digging into this thorny conversation of, at the end of an era of globalization, uh, we're finding a lot of the economic anxieties that are fueling the kind of election we're seeing this year uh, are playing out uh, because we haven't figured out how to have a more deeply shared prosperity uh, within the context of uh, capitalism, within the context of labor markets and financial markets, and uh, the, the, the what happens in the job markets and also what happens in terms of uh, capital markets, uh, and what are the opportunities for, uh, for all Americans to participate broadly in that work. So uh, as we go into this, the only other two thank yous I want to do are really to the underwriters of a, really an experimental conversation. Uh, we are going to uh, be thanking uh, all of our participants tonight, but uh, this wouldn't be possible without the Prudential Foundation and the Ford Foundation, uh, two incredible thought partners uh, in our work over the years uh, who really have challenged us to continue to try to hit some frontier areas and bring together not just two issues, but uh, a bipartisan cross-industry, cross-sector conversation. Uh, great. So tonight we're really going to um, focus on the political climate and on... Um, we're going to kind of jumpstart our conversation and thinking about the current context, the elections, and really how economic insecurity is influencing uh, the race. And uh, so I have the great privilege now of introducing you to our wonderful panel. And I'm going to start with uh, right next to me is uh, J.D. Vance, uh, author of Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. Uh, he has contributed to the National Review and the New York Times and has appeared on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and CNBC. So, uh, so he's got a lot of experience talking, so we're great. Uh, glad to have him here. <laughs> uh, let's see, next to J.D. is Jacob Hacker, uh, director of the Institute Institution for Social Policy 
Social and Policy Studies at Yale University, sorry about that, uh, where he is also a professor of political science. He is author or co-author of five books, including The Great Risk Shift, The New Economic Insecurity, and The Decline of the American Dream, and American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. Uh, next to Jacob is Heather McGee. Uh, Heather is president of Demos, a public policy organization working for an America where we all have an equal say in our democracy and an equal chance in our economy. She frequently appears on shows such as Meet the Press, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Hardball with Chris Matthews. Um, and next to Heather is uh, Stan Greenberg, chairman and CEO of Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Research. And he is New York Times bestselling author and polling advisor to presidents, prime ministers, and CEOs. So we have a really fabulous panel here. And I am super delighted to also introduce my uh, esteemed colleague, Mickey Edwards. We are so delighted that Mickey's agreed to join us tonight to moderate this conversation. Um, Mickey uh, was a Republican member of Congress for 16 years, served on the House Budget and Appropriations Committee, and as a chairman of the House Republican Policy Committee. Um, he is now director of the Aspen Institute's Rodell Fellows Program, which is uh, just a wonderful embodiment of so much of what we try to do at the Aspen Institute, and Mickey himself is, Mickey himself is a wonderful embodiment of what we try to do. Uh, he really brings that spirit of uh, bipartisan dialogue, of really trying to find the values, um, engaging in civil discourse, and and having a constructive conversation in which we can really move forward. Um, so we're so happy to have Mickey here to lead this conversation. And Mickey, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Maureen and Ida. I, first of all, uh, thanks to the, the, these two wonderful programs. One of the things that we try to do at the Aspen Institute, I'm, I'm also a vice president of the Aspen Institute, uh, and one of the things we try to do uh, is to take this, this wonderful institute which began years ago by looking at great books and ideas and values and helping people move outside of their current situation to look at things from a bigger, broader, better uh, perspective. Uh, but with Walter Isaacson's leadership, we more and more are now getting into the real significant relevant issues, not just talking about ideas and values, but how we can affect those, those values and ideas. So uh, I'm really delighted to be with these two programs. And I especially want to thank the, the people here from Society of Fellows, because you keep this place running. Uh, you are, you're very valuable to us. Uh, there's something very special also with the kind of programs that we talk about that find people who are in a community that actually that has more resources than most people do uh, in this country and who are so committed to trying to work for the betterment of the whole. So uh, I'm, I'm always honored to be with you. It's also, I should say to all of you, it's a little intimidating because everybody in the audience could be up here instead of us. I mean, it's, it's a really impressive uh, organization. So we're going to talk about uh, politics, the current politics, um, and dig a little deeper. First of all, I do want to say, because I've been asked several questions uh, uh, as I came in from friends who noticed that I came in with a split lip and a black eye. Uh, <laughs> and, and so the, the logical assumption was that Donald had been reading what I'd been writing and sent some of his <laughs> friends to talk to me. That's... You know, it's not what happened, but not yet, but, you know, it might. So 
I, I want to start uh, with Stan because, uh, first of all, what a moderator knows, you all have watched the debate, so you know that whatever a moderator asks, <laughs> what they hear is that's something that maybe I'll make some reference to as I talk about what I want to talk about. So, but, but Stan, one of the things, and you can give us a great perspective as one of the great pollsters in this country about what's really happening here, but one of the questions that really weighs on me assuming that Hillary Clinton is going to be elected. Is that the end of this? Is this a, a Donald Trump phenomenon, his personality, and he's gone and then it goes back to normal? Or are we looking, as you do this polling and ask people what's moving them, are we looking at something that's longer term and going to have a, a, a deeper, longer effect than just this one candidate? Okay. So, <clears throat> Mickey, thank you very much. I'm delighted to uh, appear uh, here at, at Aspen with you and we uh, work together. And since I'm starting with the, what I want to talk about, how come, I, how come she's getting more time than me well, <laughs> as <she> moderator? Absolutely. <laughs> let's get that out on the table right yes. at the start. Yeah. Okay, let's do this in a fair way. And I, this, also, this, this is also a little, um, the, the stool was a little disconcerting uh, for, for someone as short as, as uh, Mickey and I. Um, it's rigged. At, at it's rig all rigged. Uh, no, but it, it recalls the 19. It recalls the 1992 presidential campaign, the the town uh, town forum, uh, you know, with Bill Clinton, Perot, and Bush. Uh, I was the I was pro in the in the rehearsals. We purposely, or our managers purposely created high, this stool this high, so the pro's legs were he was was dangling and couldn't get off the chair to go talk to the audience. That he wouldn't be able to have that kind of connection. So when you look at that history and how we made the the, the new Democrats and um, and changed America, started with this stool. Uh, so I do want to talk about a country. Uh, the I want to get to the election, but I want to get to the uh, to the country. Uh, I think we are at a um, at a transformative uh, moment in the country <clears throat> for the country for the election um, for what I believe will happen here, and I also think for the politics of reform. I think we're going to when this election is over. I think we're going to step back and and <clears throat> and really deal with a whole range of issues that were pushed through this process came to came to a head in this election, but an election that may make it possible to treat a whole range of issues in a different uh, way. We're in a country where two-thirds say the country's on the wrong track. Right now, well, before the debate, the first debate, if you asked which candidate was better on handling the economy, was Trump over Clinton? If you asked which party is better at, uh, in handling the economy right now, it's Republicans over Democrats on handling the um, economy. And there emerged in this election, for me, the two most powerful forces, both in the Republican primary and in the Democratic, and now in, and, and in this election, with I think some significant effect, um, were two groups of change voters. The first were the white working class men who dominated a Republican primary that is primarily a white working class primary. Um, but they were the voters most angry about the direction of the country, most angry about the role of big institutions and wanting, uh, wanting change. Um, and they elected, um, they, you know, they nominated Donald Trump, put him in a position to run for president. Millennials are the other group um, that is just as, believes in almost identical numbers that the country's on the, on the wrong track, has almost identical figures on their 
distrust of uh, corporate institutions in, uh, in, uh, in particular, wanting, uh, wanting change, uh, anger about the, uh, the economy. The white working class men are going to be about 16% of the electorate, and they're a declining portion. The, the millennials are going to be double that. Um, and are growing at an explosive rate in terms of in the, in the country, in society, you know, and in the uh, election. But the two of them are playing a very big part. They're driving the intensity on the Trump side, and they're driving the third party voting, the disengagement um, on the Democratic side. And both of those things are going to be critical to what happens in this election. Now, the reason why they are there and I think important, if we're thinking about the politics of resentment, because I I, the word resentment is, is a word I'm uncomfortable with, because it sounds like they, resent sounds like you, it's a grievance that doesn't <laughs> justify. Uh, the, we are, we are dealing with a country that we all know that, you know, that uh, has not had in, uh, income growth for a very long time, but the, we've watched un, under a democratic watch, under President Obama, who I view, I view as a great president, will be an historic president, um, will be remembered for what he's done on the economic recovery. But his economic project was the economic recovery. Now, his policies produced important changes on inequality, particularly tax policies, but if you, but if you look at what his political project was that he took to the country, it was the economic recovery. It was creating jobs to get the economy back to where it was before the crisis, um, but it was not the long-term stagnation, decline, stagnation of incomes, and it was not the huge spike in growth of inequality uh, in the country, and it was not the growing corruption of the, of the political class together with business that was creating a system of politics where money was buying uh, influence. So when you look at these two groups of change voters, what they are most upset about um, is crony capitalism on the, on the white working class side. And if you look at the millennial voters who voted for Bernie Sanders, you know, they gave, they gave Bernie Sanders, I didn't do the parallel piece of this. The white working class men, you know, gave us Donald Trump. The, uh, the millennials um, gave Bernie Sanders a huge proportion, I think 85% of their vote. And he said more than any, anybody else that if there was one issue to address, it was money in politics. So we have to come, so when we think about why there is this politics of resentment, why we have such a belief that there needs to be change, uh, it starts with the fact that the leaders of the country have not really talked about the big structural changes in the country, have not talked about the corruption of business and politics um, that has allowed people to believe that the government writes the rules uh, for, the, for the few, not the many. Uh, and that we have, uh, that we've left those issues unaddressed. And even at the beginning of this campaign, if you look at the way Hillary Clinton was running for, for this, she was running on a message of build on the progress. Okay. The public is, a, is very acutely conscious of what's happening in, in the country. If it, if you, if you, in focus groups, if you list the number of jobs that have been created, the moderators, would virtually get attacked for throwing out the idea that the, that the number of jobs somehow represents changes in the economy that are going to be a benefit to ordinary people. Um, but, they, but they also are focused on the role of money. 
on how big people are. It is in people's head. They get it. They've, got, they've, they've developed an acute consciousness of how the rich use their lobbyists and use their money to, um, to buy influence over government and create a government that doesn't work for ordinary, uh, for ordinary people. And so that is in people's heads. And as we began this election, we have a period under democratic governance where these issues were not addressed, were silent on them, even though there was this deepening resentment and, and demand for reform that was building in the country and played out most powerfully um, in the white working class men uh, and amongst millennials. Uh, and, but Hillary had made a major change. You should look very carefully at what she's done in the, in the first debate um, and, and the economic argument that she laid out there and also the speech she gave in Toledo on the, on the um, economy. She is, she is delivering a change message on the economy, focused on special interests, focused on corporate irresponsibility. Uh, and it is deep in her message now of change on, on what she wants to run on. So we're at a, at a moment in the election where we have this anger having built up and played it out through both primaries, played itself in the, out, out in the general election in the intensity of support for Trump voters, you know, and in the disengagement of millennials and fragmentation of millennial uh, voters with their uncertain role um, at the, en at the end, of, end of the day. But also late in the game, where Hillary Clinton is beginning to articulate an economic argument and a, and a, and a program of change that begins to, to, to uh, preview the kind of reforms that could produce a pretty bold era of change. Right now, we're looking at this moment, this resentment, which is very strong. It's not resentment's not my word. You know, there's a, this frustration. I think is I think stronger because millennials are actually pretty optimistic in the end about you know where they think the country will be and where they will you know, end up, and they got engaged. And by the way, it's true of both white and class men. If you look at their turnout in the primaries, and if you look at millennials and what happened in the primaries, that they got engaged and they're following closely. They may not. Who knows whether their, where their vote will be. But you're not, you can't listen to millennials and not know they're following this very closely and believe they have to press this process forward. So we are, this election is bringing these things to a head, but it's bringing together things that have been building over a long period, certainly in the last decade, but with progressives not having begun to engage with the issues that I think matter the most for the, per the transformative period we have ahead. So. That very good stand, and, and that would ordinarily, I'm, Jacob, I'm going to skip here. I'm going to go out of my regular order here and get back to you in a minute because what you've written would naturally flow right out mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. uh, Stan has said. But, but listening to that, uh, I want, uh, Heather, I want to ask you a question because uh, when I was, uh, I grew up in a, in a poor working class neighborhood in Oklahoma City, uh, all white working class, uh, and there was, I will, I will always remember this, there was this mood, no, nobody was overtly racist or anything, but in ways, the, the, the south side of Oklahoma City where I lived was divided by a river from the north side, uh, where, which was more affluent. Uh, and there was a saying that everybody knew if you lived there, you know, that blacks were not allowed to cross the river after dark. 
you know, and so I, I listen to this, and I, I, I hear a lot now about, you know, it, it's the income inequality or it's the money in politics. Is that all that's going on, or uh, uh, is there, uh, are, are there cultural, racial, uh, sexual identity, gender, you know, what, what else is going on here besides the things mm -hmm. that Stan has pointed to? No. None of that is going on. All right. All right. Well, okay, Jake. Hey, you know, thank God those answers. Um, no, thank you, Mickey, for the question and for everything that you do. Um, so I'm really glad to be here in Aspen. Um, the altitude discomfort hasn't set in yet. I'm really looking forward to the next few days of conversation. Um, this is a great time to be sort of pulled away from... Uh, this election and to be thinking about big ideas together. So um, at Demos, we try to actually square that circle, right? To do some work uh, analytically in terms of narrative and also in terms of issues and campaigns to try to unite the argument that has been a you know, multi-generation class argument um, which I think Bernie Sanders articulated very well and in many ways embodied in himself, this sort of multi-generational class, indefatigable class argument with uh, the urgent concerns um, really of, in some ways, the sort of Obama generation uh, where issues of identity are still uh, at the fore. And the way that we've been able to do that is to retell the story that, frankly, I came up in, in sort of progressive economics, um, which is the story of the sort of post-war golden era of shared prosperity, um, where we had a social contract between business and labor and government, where there was just this sense that, of course, all of the basic rules ordering the society and the workforce should sort of orient towards the support of a nuclear family headed by a single man. And when taxes were high and the minimum wage was high and there were great union density and everybody had a shot at the middle class. Then something terrible happened and that social contract was frayed. Um, and if you look at you know, the Economic Policy Institute's wonderful charts and graphs in the state of working America, you can start to see uh, the productivity and wage uh, split begin. You can start to see incomes become stagnant for the bottom four uh, quintiles of the income distribution. Uh, you can start to see debt go up, um, trade policies change, taxes change, public investment in state and local uh, uh, sort of public structures, certainly education and particularly higher education began to change. Um, and there's never really a compelling answer for why. Sometimes um, the story is about just corporations got organized and people point to the Powell memo and they say that um, it was basically sort of a backlash of the organizing on the left of the 1960s and um, corporations just understood that they could actually use their economic influence uh, to create political influence and write the, the rules in their favor. That, that certainly happened, I think your um, book with Paul, uh, Winner Take All Politics, gives a really great uh, sort of story there. Um, but something also happened that the millennial generation feels to its core, and I'm a millennial grandmother. I'm sort of like the oldest millennial. <laughs> I have one, one foot in both uh, generations, very, very much so. Um, and, um, but we feel to our core this sort of unexplained why 
that I think is what pushes us to demand more authenticity and more truth from our leaders, which is that it became harder to, for the average American to get by at really the exact same time that the face of the average American changed. And that once you had the Immigration Act of 1965 and the demographic change that really set in then and of course is increasing exponentially as demographic change does every year and our generation is the most racially and ethnically diverse generation in history, somehow the same hard work and in fact more, the same desire for education and in fact more didn't pay off. And the social distance between those who, because they're executives or because they're legislators, um, are still predominantly white men, right? Two out of every three uh, elected officials at the state uh, and federal level is, is, is a white man. Um, the social distance between the sort of class that is still writing the rules and setting the norms and today's kindergarten and fourth grade classes has grown. And so the sort of norms within which one writes the rules, the sense of the circle of human concern, of whose hard work is rewarded, of who gets a benefit of the doubt, um, has shifted. And when leaders don't talk about that, and I say leaders, not just political leaders, but many of us who have to tell a story about the economy and financial security and economic opportunity and asset building, don't talk about that piece it rings deeply hollow. And the social science research shows it and the political science research shows it. And I think that right now with this idea, this phrase that has become in some ways uh, well-worn, this idea of intersectionality, which means so much less than people sort of, it's gotten a meaning now more than it is. But the heart of it is we have to think about race and class, about gender, about immigration status, all of that in a much more connected way than the sort of orthodoxy of our political thinking has allowed so far. And all of those issues live in your average millennial voter in one way or another, criminalization, uh, immigration status, debt-free college, paid family leave, um, whether or not you can you know, live your sexuality as you see fit, whether or not you can get public transportation into a city that works. These are all issues that our generation, for whatever reason, sees as connected. And I'll end just by saying this, and I think it's um, this moment we're in right now of this many moment election <laughs> um, where there's sort of renewed activism um, about the issue of sexual assault and feminism and misogyny. After moments of renewed activism about racism and anti-immigrant um, sentiment and about the greed embodied in someone who boasts that they have paid no taxes in a generation, federal income taxes in a generation. Um, right now, I do believe, and this is, it's a beautiful thing, you've got thousands of women across the country who are sexual assault survivors um, speaking out, sitting in at Trump hotels and towers, and they're connecting the belief that one of the most powerful men in the country can do whatever he wants with a woman's body to the same kind of racism and the same kind of greed that has been so much a part of what progressives have been pushing back. 
And I would say that what sort of undergirds all of it is an assertion of a hierarchy of human value. And that's a belief that's as old as this country. And this generation, I think, is deeply committed to unending that. It's a paradigm shift, it's not reform. Um, and you see it in the, the language that's used around movements. Black Lives Matter, love us all, right? This is not, you know, reform the system. This is actually sort of about who we are to one another and what we owe to one another. And it's very deep and it's, it's not actually going away anytime after this election. Great. Uh, Jacob, what, what, one of the things that fascinates me about the stuff you talk about and write about is, is the way we have actually changed our focus. We've changed our direction. Uh, I know um, when, when I was in Congress, I was always um, amazed by the way Democrats and Republicans both lined up uh, to support fast-track trade authority, which is basically a way the presidents take away from Congress or Congress surrenders the right. You know, to work, continue to work out. You know, watch out for the working class, and you know, in the, in the pursuit of the globalization. And, and you, you've done a lot about how we've really reversed where where we used to put our focus on the middle class and so forth. So, um, how'd that happen? What what's and and you know, our, what what's gonna, where's it going to lead us to? Because it's it's very disturbing. Well, first, thanks, Mickey. And and before we. Started, I was chatting with him, and he goes, "Well, I'm just hoping that you'll be brilliant tonight." So I guess the no, the I, I told you you have to be brilliant. <laughs> I have to be brilliant. Okay, you're not even hoping. So. Yeah. Um, so first, it's just a pleasure to be here, and it's true that uh, any of you could be up on this stage. And so I hope that we can um, have a nice conversation after we've um, provided our, our our insights about what's going on. And and this is a nice, I think, Stan and, and Heather's um, comments are a good setup for. You know, broadening to think about this question of what of what of what's happened over the last generation, and um, I come at this with um, with a perspective that's that's born of um, of both good and bad luck in book publishing. And so I was telling uh, JD beforehand that you know one of my favorite quotes about publishing is that the period before a book comes out is the calm before the calm, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and usually and usually the calm is, you know, there's very little between that. And, um, and yet with Winner Take All Politics, which um, I published back in, or which was published back in 2010, there was, there was no interest at first, and then Occupy Wall Street happened, and this became a major topic of debate. And, um, and I think the book resonated with people because there were, and I think Heather's absolutely right, we could have said a lot more about race, but because we basically said, look, um, the increased inequality and insecurity in this country is not the result of these large impersonal forces. It's a result of political choices um, that our, our leaders are making. And those choices are constrained, of course, and the world has changed. But we tried to really show the various, um, really quite um, powerful ways in which um, choices that political leaders made or deliberately, or things that they deliberately didn't do um, were leading to these trends. And, and you know, what really stands out, and this, this um, I continue to be struck by, is that as much as there is um, in, you know, enormous economic dynamism in the United States and Stan's written about this, as much as we've recovered well comparatively um, from the downturn, um, and Europe is shackled by a very um, dangerous economic institutional machinery, 
Nonetheless, on relative measures of well-being, the United States still performs ab just abjectly. And we once sort of led the pack in all of these. And that's really striking because, of course, all these countries are subject to many of these same forces. And you know, reading JD's book, I was, I was trying to think about um, you know, how he would answer the question that he himself posed about why the US has worse social outcomes than uh, many European countries. And you know, I have a lot of thoughts about that. But one thing I would say is that, and, and I think it was both business backlash and the fact that at the moment when African Americans and women were fully incorporated into the social contract, into our mixed economy, um, was, precisely the, was precisely a moment when, A, the old industrial economy, um, the bottom fell out of it. And that was true in all rich democracies. So, I mean, there clearly were things we could have done to manage that better, but the transition from industrial manufacturing to services was a worldwide phenomenon. And B, and more important in my mind, right, was a conservative um, reaction. And it was very much about business Re reacting against um, the, what they saw as the regulatory excesses of the 1960s and 70s. But it was also, you're right, it's, it, was also about, it was also about race. And in the language of makers and takers that you sometimes hear today, um, you know, there's no question that the, they'd have different skin colors in many people's minds. And though I think we have to get past the idea that racial resentment, as it's sometimes called, is a political science concept and it's quite prevalent, and particularly among uh, Trump supporters, is somehow an alternative to or totally distinct from the sense of pervasive insecurity that people are feeling. I mean, we know from history, we know from research that I've done and others have done that these two things often go together. Um, and that um, there's that image in Arlie Hochschild's book about the Tea Party where the, the image is that uh, that at one point, right, we were all standing in line for the American dream. One of her white respondents says this. Uh, well, actually, she says it, and they agree with it. I'm a little worried about that research technique. And he <laughs> says, and, and then all of a sudden, these black people cut in front of me. Well, they don't say black people, but it's clear that's what they mean. In that sense, right, it's both of those ideas. It's an idea that there's something unfair, there's some unjustified advantage that's going uh, to people who don't look like me, who, didn't, who don't have the same background as me, but also that the, you know, that the line to the American dream is so much longer. So the last thing I would say here is that, um, is that I think, well, we, I guess I, I think that we're, we're a, a pretty far, unfortunately, from having the kind of reform debate and drive that you're talking about. And, and here's my concern. Um, because I, I, I mean, at the end of our most recent book, American Amnesia, Paul and I say there's good news and bad news, right? And the, the good news is, is that there's enormous potential, that there's all these positive sum bargains that we're leaving on the table because our political system and our government isn't working well. But the bad news, as we point out, is that our political system isn't working well. And I mean, right now in the age of Trump, it's suddenly like garden variety political dysfunction looks good, right? But our, we can barely pass a budget or a transportation bill. We can't invest in infrastructure when interest rates are zero. We can't invest in science and R&D and higher education when it's more important than ever. You know, I could go on, right? That's a serious problem. I do think there's a bunch of relatively small, relative to the big kind of constitutional changes that people in their dreams sometimes uh, fantasize about, there's relatively small changes that can move us. But I fear that the immediate context is one of backlash. And, um, and 
the story we tell, which I think is the story of why Trump rose to power and why racial themes are so much a part of his, um, his appeal, is that the Republican Party came to rely on stoking um, this activist base and believing that it's an existential threat in every election. And, it, and that sort of turned on them. And it's not a governing party. It's a party built for opposition. Um, you know, I, um, I call this asymmetric polarization, right? That the Republican Party has moved dramatically to the right while the Democratic Party has perhaps recently become uh, significantly more progressive. But over longer term, that is not the story. And, and that, I think, is driven by this very different nature of the, the Republican base and the strategies that have been used for deploying it. So my fear is that the immediate effect of a Clinton presidency, and that would be a in my view, a good outcome is going to be backlash. And it's going to be a very difficult period. Obviously, it'll depend on other factors. Um, but I think over the longer term, I'm more optimistic. So I'll stop there. No, no, that, no. Not, that's not, when not, you ought to go uh, on and on. Not, <laughs> not Keynes's longer term. So we'll come um, back to it. <laughs> well, then there are, uh, having grown up you know, where I did, I was fascinated, J.D., by, by what you're talking about. And, and the question it raises in my mind, so when I gather with people who I uh, have relationships with, feel affinity to, uh, and probably a lot of the people in this room, uh, and we look what's happening with, with Donald Trump, and, and uh, there's a feeling that there is something really horrible happening, and how do we stop it? Are, are all the people who were your neighbors feeling that? Or are, are, are we really two Americas where there are uh, people who are saying, well, thank God, somebody is finally standing up and ready to turn this basket upside down and um, who in fact feel maybe either elation or at least some sense of satisfaction, you know, where we're feeling dismay? What? Yeah, so, so first, thank you and, and thanks uh, to the Aspen Institute for having me and hope to, to meet some, some more people over the next couple of days. I mean, so, so one of the things that I hear in the, in the previous three comments, and I don't necessarily disagree with them, though I, I wanna sort of add a third element. So the two things that I hear is this sense of economic insecurity, and the, the other thing I hear is this sort of sense of maybe racial insecurity or racial resentment, whatever you wanna call it, this idea that there are more people participating in the American social compact, and therefore, you know, maybe they're cutting in line, but in some ways that's driving some sort of frustration or alienation. So. You know, I, I just want to bracket that, not because it's not important or not because I don't think that some of these things are going on, uh, but because I think that there is a lot else going on in these communities that's driving both the political resentment and, and you know, some of the frustration that has led to Donald Trump. So, you know, as, as I talk about in my book, you know, my, my sense of the problems in the white working class, and that's fundamentally what the book is about, the white working class, which, you know, a, a subset of the white working class with strong ties in Appalachia, the Scots-Irish white, white working class, I think that's a very large segment, um, but you know, kind of set that to the side for now. Uh, my, my sense is that there are very clear economic forces that are especially affecting these people in a way that's unique to the rest of the country. So the decline of coal, the decline of steel, the decline of other light manufacturing, these are economic problems that are hitting these communities especially hard, that are causing a certain amount of economic anxiety and insecurity. And I think that's an important part of the equation. I mean, I say that in the, in the book repeatedly. But I also think that there's something else going on in these communities, what I would call a general cultural or social anxiety 
some of which is connected to race, but some of which I think is connected to much, you know, m many other things that are going on. So, you know, just one statistic that I find especially striking. The white working class in material terms still continues to outperform the black working class, both in incomes and wealth. That's just a fact of life. But if you look at the heroin overdose and the heroin death rates among the white working class, much, much higher than any other sub-demographic in the entire country. And so one of the things I'm trying to really drill down on is, why is that happening? Why are these people who are still sort of economically better off, maybe not doing especially well, but still economically better off, dying from heroin overdoses at much, much higher degrees? Why is the incarceration rate for the white working class going up while it's going down among many segments of the black population, something we don't talk about, but I think we should because it's a good thing. So that, that's sort of the question that I'm, I'm trying to answer in my book. And the, the way that I'll sort of frame the way that I think about this problem is with a recent study that's come out that's gotten a lot of press about like what is driving the economic, or sorry, what is driving the Trump phenomenon. So this study by Jonathan Rothwell, of Gallup, where he really tries to dig into the data, tens of thousands of surveys, and understand what is driving the Trump phenomenon. And so one of the things he finds is that economic anxiety is certainly a part of the Trump phenomenon, though it's not the primary part of the Trump phenomenon. One of the very interesting things that he finds is that yes, Trump voters are more likely to be blue collar, they're more likely to be lower income relative to other whites, but within their specific communities, within the controls of blue collar white Americans, maybe they have the same income or even slightly elevated incomes. And his argument, which I agree, is that economics isn't the only thing that's driving this. But the other things that he finds that are driving the Trump phenomenon that don't get talked about as much, which I just find totally fascinating. So Trump voters are much, much more likely to know or to be veterans of the armed forces. They're much, much more likely to live in areas with high and rising white mortality rates. They're much more likely to live in areas where the addiction crisis is really setting in and kind of taking over public life in these areas. And so my sense of, of what's going on and what's really driving the Trump phenomenon, set aside from these other two factors, is this really strong sense that other things in the community aren't working. You know, we talk about wealth, and we talk about income, but what about family? What about not opening the newspaper and seeing the, another kid in your neighborhood has died of a heroin overdose? Uh, what about rising mortality rates? And so my, my sense is that we, we need to be a little bit better as sort of policy elites, which is a term that people back home use very pejoratively, but I'm gonna use here um, and hope you guys won't be offended. But what, what do policy elites, what can we do to sort of reconnect, not just rising incomes, but rising incomes to a lot of these other social indicators that are going in the wrong direction. I don't, you know, I think it's a very tough question, but I think that's a really significant part of what's driving the Trump phenomenon. And to go back to your question, because these things are gonna continue going in the wrong direction, at least for the short-term future, I don't think that this is a short-term problem. I, you know, this economic populism that exists, especially on the right, is gonna be with us for a little bit longer, and I'd like to, to think a little bit about how to deal with it. Does anybody have an answer for that? Well, you know, I, I guess I just have maybe you know, a... I, Heather, I've always found that when, when, when I write my books, uh -huh. all people are always saying, yeah, 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 we got it. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, so, you know, what are you, you going to answer chapter problem, problem here? Well, we call that yeah, the right. last chapter problem. Like, well, I, think one, I, I think JD's absolutely right that the, um, the heroin epidemic, the uh, beginning of um, sort of 
lowering uh, rates of, of marriage and all of that. Um, the pain medication epidemic, which is actually something where um, I didn't get a chance to look at it quickly, but there was a recent study about just how many of uh, white men who are out of work have used an, an, op an opiate pain medication in the past like day. Um, mm -hmm. Astonishingly high numbers. That is something where we actually know where the pain medication is coming from, right? right. Yeah. Um, so that's something that seems a lot easier to control maybe even than uh, an illegal uh, substance. Um, but I have two sort of questions that that raises for me is one, the deindustrialization of the cities of Gary, of Detroit, of Chicago, where I grew up, that affected black men um, happened you know, 25 years ago, and the crap epidemic came right after, right? And, and the similar story um, was playing out, you know, in the south side of Chicago and in Gary and in um, uh, Detroit. Um, and I'm not even gonna make the point that maybe people think I'm going to make, which is the different sort of response <laughs> to that um, than is happening now. I think that, that goes without saying. But I guess the question is, why does the, the uncontrolled pain, the heroin, the social illness, point to Trump? Yeah, so I think a very good and important question. My sense of the answer, and I'm certainly no expert in the sort of, you know, Jacob, I'm sure, knows the politics better than me, but this is my sense of what really drives Trump back home. I mean, so yes, there's, there's a fair amount of, of, of racial animus, but I, I really don't think that's the main thing that's driving the Trump phenomenon. Um, I think it's unique, and I think Trump exploits it in a very unique way, but my sense is that the broad, the broad group of Trump voters is not primarily drive, driven by um, the racial animus. So m my answer to this question is that Republican voters, Republican-based voters for the past 20 or so years have grown increasingly frustrated with the promises of the party, promises that have not materialized into better economic prospects. And so if you think about 2008, what was John McCain's platform? It was fundamentally the same platform as George W. Bush in 2000 and 2012. Mitt Romney's platform was fundamentally the same as John McCain's in 2008. And in 2016, every single Republican candidate, save one, had the exact same platform, more or less, that Mitt Romney did in 2012. And they were both, I think, a substantive and sort of a cultural or tonal or whatever you want to say element to that, that Trump appeal. So the substantive side is he's saying things that no Republican candidate has said. He's anti-immigration, he's anti-trade, he's anti, I mean, even the parts of his tax policy that are sort of traditional Republican tax policies, he's emphasized removing the carried interest loophole for hedge fund managers. That's what he talks about on the campaign trail. So there's, there's a sense in which what Trump was saying is all of the solutions of the Republican policy elites for the past two decades have been complete failures, and I'm offering you something new. There's also, there is the, the, the tonal element of this, the sort of cultural resentment that exists in a lot of, 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 of these parts of the country, which is that you know, the, the sense that people back home have is that the folks who are sitting in this room fundamentally look down on middle America as a bunch of dumb rednecks. Uh, as my grandma said, hillbilly, redneck, these are the only slurs that you're allowed to use in polite conversation that are still acceptable if you have an education. They're, you know, not to say that racial slurs aren't acceptable in other parts of the country, but there are certainly, there's this sense among the white working class, and I don't think it's totally unjustified that people who have financial, political, educational power actually look down on the white working class in a really fundamental way, 
and Trump is, you know, the metaphorical middle finger to that entire movement. So, so both in substance and in tone, Trump represented a pretty radical departure from, let's say, the Jeb Bush platform of 2016, and that's what drove a lot of voters in his direction. That's my sense of, the, of it. Can I take this to a different, a different place? Because uh, I, I started when I was, when I went from being an academic to doing what I do as a pollster and strategist. Uh, it was Reagan Democrats that was the was the the voters that I worked with, and I was very much came out of the idea that you had to have respect for these voters, <clears throat> don't assume they're racist. Right. There are a whole range of, range of reasons why they can become part of a bottom-up um, uh, progressive project. And Democrats are, are and I, I was ostracized <clears throat> for insisting that we had to speak to Reagan Democrats and ignore their racism or their expressions of race. But we're at a different moment. And my, my fear is that, uh, that we're looking at them in a way as if we were back in two decades ago, rather than a country that is changing so rapidly that right now I said we're gonna have 16%, they're gonna be white working class men in, in this electorate, twice as many will be millennials. Within four years, it'll be three. Millennials will, be the, you know, will, will dominate the culture, the politics. Now, they, there are huge issues. Racial identity, working family, um, uh, huge, you know, huge uh, debt, um, inequality of, within amongst millennials in the urban areas where they where they live. Huge issues that center around the millennials. But the millennials are the driving piece, and we're also not getting the working class. Yeah. So I'm, indeed, I understand the issues that were that are concentrating and growing with the white working class men. The majority of the white working class are women. They face a huge range of issues, are responding to this crisis in very different ways, in the way they get skills, education, and go into the labor force. But they are dealing with this in a whole, very different ways. And part of the, you know, part of the reason why we've lost voters in off-year elections is we haven't paid attention to the women, the, the white working class women who go in and out of the electorate, unmarried women. We have a growing uh, majority unmarried population. So that the, I think we're at an end game. In other words, the, the fate of these voters are part of an end game. So it's why I'm not as pessimistic even in the short term. Well, I think we're gonna right. have an, I think, right. I think because of Hillary Clinton's difficulties as a candidate, her articulating the, the need for change and reform and yeah. all the other issues that surround her, it is obscured how big are the forces that are about to produce a very big election. Okay. Let me just let me just say two quick things. So one is uh, JD on this question. I mean, there are there are a lot of political science analyses. This is Trump is um, Trump has been a bit of a, <laughs> a, a gift for political scientists in two respects. One is um, that we have this thesis we call the minimal effects hypothesis, which is basically that usually candidates are reasonably strategic and they do the things that will maximize their vote. Needless to say, Trump is, is not, is not, uh, um, he's not um, playing along with that hypothesis. Second, um, the second thing I think is that we're getting a chance to see, uh, you know, I mean, there is a real question of to what extent was this kind of sentiment mobilizable, but the norms against doing so were, were great and that this elite party for all its faults did still have sort of certain restraints. Um, and so they, it was incipient and they're waiting to be mobilized, but it's being mobilized. And so the political mm -hmm. science have been looking at it and, and 
I will say, I mean, you know, these racial resentment indices and scores are just the most strongest predictor of Trump, uh, Trump votes. Um, it's very hard, I think, in most of the survey research to really look at economic issues. When someone has an income of fifty or $60,000, what really matters is we're going to discuss over the next few days is whether or not they're feeling precarious, whether that income was $75,000 a year before or $25,000, but it's just one year that they think they might be able to scrape by. Um, so these issues of volatility and wealth, like how much you have to tide yourself by, those are really fundamental. And so any sort of, most of these surveys, which are just cross-sectional surveys and just look at one point in time, don't give you that rich picture of people's overtime experiences, which is really necessary to look at the relationship between economic insecurity or mobility and people's political preferences. But the last thing I just wanted to say here is that um, I, I I'm not, I'm generally actually, I know this may sound surprising if you've read any of my books, I am not a pessimist. I actually am very optimistic um, over the, even the medium term. Um, I, I think JD's diagnosis of what's happened to the GOP is right. That is that the party, um, you know, you think of the, set, the themes that were sort of being talked about at Koch seminar, Koch, you know, brothers seminars, right, which were all around libertarian kind of, um, you know, crony, there was obviously the, like, let's help out certain sectors of the business community, which breeds resentment, but a big part of it is like, you know, keep, you know, keep cutting taxes, always cut taxes, especially on the rich, um, cut spending more, that's the haiku, I think, the Republican haiku. Um, and, and that was, you know, what was exposed this year is that, uh, this last two years, is that there, there, there was this base of support within the GOP that had no, attra no attraction to it. But what I, what I, so I've said that it's a, it's not a very, it's, the GOP has ceased to be an effective governing party. That's sort of an understatement. But I worry that it's going to be a kind of zombie party for the next few years mm -hmm. in that it has one big, you know, eat brains, eat Hillary brains, right? That is, it's going to be, you know, that is the one uniting force. I mean, look at this, look at this um, campaign. I have never seen the kind of rhetoric at the, at, so forget all the racial stuff. Like lock her up, right? Um, you should be in jail. I'm going to prosecute you if I'm elected, right? I mean, there is, this is a unifying force within the GOP, the only perhaps unifying force within the GOP, and that's why I'm frightened. But it will obviously depend on the political context, on the degree to which the Senate and the House um, switch toward, uh, shift towards Democrats, um, on the nature of, of Clinton's victory, on what Donald Trump does afterwards, and he may suddenly decide he is a reality TV star and he wants to go back and, you know, uh, do The Apprentice again. Billy Bush's experience suggests to me that he may have a hard time. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, my, that's the source of my fear. It's not, I think, what you're saying, which is more about the, the place where the country as a whole is. Well, let, let, let me question the optimism a little bit. I, I've been looking around the room. <laughs> my how, how, my how optimism? How many people I'm going to offend here? I was talking about optimism. Uh, there, there are some forces that are out here that are, I think, going to be harmful. Um, one of them is, I mean, there are the media. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump is a creation of the media, largely, which was complicit. Oh. You know, when Les Moonves made the comment about, uh, you know, 
sorry, <laughs> you know. But uh, when Les Moonves made this comment about, I don't know whether or not Trump's good for the country, but he's good for CBS, he was only <laughs> saying what a lot of other people in the media were saying. You know, how, how much can we, you know, get this guy airtime because it will boost our ratings, our anchors will make more money, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll make more money. That's, I don't know, I don't see anything that indicates that that's going to change, that the, the uh, morality of the news media is somehow going to, you know, reflourish. But the other thing, uh, Stan, is I, I could get carried away with your idea. You're, you're pinning a lot of hope here on the people coming along, the millennials, who don't vote and who get their information for online, most of which is false. Now, I mean, square that. If, if those are the people you're counting on to save us, you know, what gives you this optimism? First of all, are we talking about short-term? Yeah, okay. I tell you, we did a survey of millennials. It totally surprised us. Um, because our assumption was millennials are the biggest, pro are the biggest problem um, for um, Hillary, highest negatives. But when we did the, the, the study, so many Republicans were voting third party. When you looked at Johnson, they were overwhelmingly Republicans and, and very anti-Trump. And you could not squeeze the Republican vote. You could squeeze the Democratic vote. That is, you could get, say, it's a two-way contest. You could give messages and attacks. And, and millennial Democrats became, you know, moved toward 95%, you know, Democratic. But Republicans didn't. The, you know, they, they, the Republicans really held out. And the result was, because the Republican vote was, you're getting 24% of Republicans voting for Johnson you know, amongst millennials. Hmm. Uh, that you were, I'm sorry, you know, like white men. We were like a slightly ahead with white men amongst millennials because of the fragmentation of the Republican vote. That's why, that's what's happening in Texas, Utah. So that, but, but it's purely short term. It's just because Republicans are so divided that it's producing, you know, even with a lower turnout in, in millennials pulling out, Trump is just bottoming, bottoming out with millennials. And he's also falling down to about 38 percent, you know, across you know, most polls, you know, you know, nationally. And so um, it's it's not optimism; it's data. <laughs> the reporting on the polls is quite amazingly. And Sunday was the best example of it. You had two polls that were uh, from from major network newspapers, one of which had a four-point lead uh, for Hillary, one had an eight-point lead. The, all of the stories. We're about the four point. How come she hasn't been able to close the deal? All of the stories were about the four point lead. Now, but also keep in mind, Obama won by 3.6. So one poll is a 2012 election. One poll is a 2008 election. And they're talking, why can't Hillary close the deal? <laughs> the question is whether this is going to be a big election, an electoral college landslide like 12, or is it going to be a crushing election uh, like 2008? But the story was, why can't she close the deal? She has strong negatives, no mandate. So the interpretation of the polls is not right. Yeah, the average of the polls now is eight point in a two-way, seven point, and, it, and moving up past 2008 uh, margins for, uh, for Hillary, um, along, with other, along with the Civil War continuing amongst Republicans. And so I think this does have the potential to be a really transformative one in which 
two things that I think we need to factor in. I think this, is, this may well be realigning on Hispanics, African-Americans, college-educated voters, and women. Not just, not, you know, not just voting against. The, he's not, Trump has not been abandoned by his own party. There, it's going to be a long time before those voters move back. So civil society will play a part in the Republican Party. Business is not willing to have a non-electable Republican Party. You know, they will, you know, they, the, you know, the libertarian parts may begin to accept certain pieces. They may begin to accept investment in education infrastructure. There, there's going to be tremendous business pressure to have a Republican Party that can co compete in the country. The, um, I'm going to go to the audience out here. I don't want to intrude on this, but I get questions from out here. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, it's, first of all, I, I hate to say this. I agree with all these comments about my party. Uh, <laughs> but, but I also, um, uh, I, I am bothered a lot, even if, if uh, Donald Trump, if a Donald Trump can get 25% of the vote in this country, that scares the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I also think, don't, don't be too rosy about uh, the Democrats, I think, that... Uh, uh, if there is a party in this country that's a national party, it's not the Democrats, because Republicans have most of the legislatures, most of the governors, both houses of Congress. They may lose one, uh, but you know. So, uh, I, I th and, and the fact that some of the Republicans who despise Trump are still saying vote for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got. So I, I don't think this is all going to turn around, but. Um, any questions out here? I know we've got people uh, who are watching video, too. Yeah, yes, go ahead. And identify yourself, if you will. Sure, I'm Diedrich Asante Mohammed, the Director of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at CFED. I just wanted to get a better understanding. I kind of looked at the Trump phenomenon as just kind of the ongoing rebellion in the Republican Party since at least the Tea Party. And I'm just trying to understand, you all probably have thought about this more, but what is the difference between, I mean, it seems like he's managed to broaden, actually, the Tea Party tent a bit. But we kind of talk about this Trump phenomenon like it's uniquely Trump, but it seems like there's been this populist rebellion, at least since the Tea Party. So if people could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Jenny. Or, who? Yeah, I, I, thought, you, I thought you raised your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Me? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, okay, I, yeah. I, I can also. Resident offer. Tea Party. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, my, my, my sense of this is that Trump is definitely the sort of inheritor of the Tea Party movement. But what's most interesting, so, so I think it expresses, I mean, again, I, I talk about how there's this long building frustration and it's taken different forms. I sort of see the Tea Party as the post financial crisis form of this frustration. And I see. Trump is, is taking this sort of 2016 version of this frustration, which is why I think it's going to keep on going and going and going. Uh, I, I want to make sort of two comments um, about that. So one is that we had sort of all expected that the Tea Party was this fundamentally libertarian movement about slashing this and that and reducing the size of government and so forth. And you know, I'm probably the most conservative person here, so I still think that there are some virtues to reducing certain, you know, certain parts of government and so forth. But I think what we really found is that the Tea Party was a movement primarily of middle income, uh, primarily white folks, who wanted to not slash all of the parts of the social welfare state, especially the parts of the social welfare state that were perceived to be as attached to work, so Medicare, 
and Social Security. And what we're sort of waking up to with Trump and everybody saying, you know, Trump isn't a conservative. He isn't, you know, he doesn't follow the Republican Party orthodoxy. How is he winning? And what we're finding is what the polls told us in 2010, which is that these voters are a lot less ideologically coherent than, uh, than, than folks expected. Or maybe they're ideologically coherent, but not in the, in the way that was cognizable to 1980s Reaganism. That's the first comment I'll make. The second comment I'll make is just sort of in response to a couple of things that, that I heard up here. And, and I just wanted to make the point that you know, vis-a-vis -vis Trump and the Republican Party and sort of racial resentment, I think one of the things we've learned this year is that political leadership really matters. And so the way that I'll illustrate this is, you know, remember back to 2001 after September the 11th, George W. Bush went on national television and said, this is not a war against Islam, American Muslims are good people, and we should fight this war robustly and aggressively while recognizing that this is not a war against an entire religion. You didn't have 67% of the country saying that we should ban all Muslims then. Mm -hmm. Now, with Trump, we have people saying, 67% of people saying you should ban all Muslims now. And I think it's largely because Trump's response to the Islamic terrorism fear, which is le legitimate in a lot of ways, his response is to say, let's ban all Muslims. I think there are a lot of different ways with a number of different constituencies that Trump has led the conversation in a bad direction. And so one of the takeaways is not just that the Republican Party base is somehow fundamentally flawed in a way that's unique in, in American political history, it's that Trump is a really bad candidate and frankly, I think a really bad person. <laughs> Let me build on, on the, uh, the Tea Party. Hmm. We are being too static. We're in the midst of revolutionary changes in the country. Every demographic change we're talking about is accelerating. It's not going to stop at the election. It's going to, uh, when people stop to see what the real electorate is and what the real America is, they started to do that in 12. I think they will do that again in, in this election. And so the, the growing groups from racial minorities, uh, millennials, uh, unmarried, you know, unmarried women, seculars, have increased 12 points in the last election presidential election, this, the, the Republican Party is a counter-revolution against those grow, that growing majority, above all, right. the increasing foreignness of the country. Immigration is the number in our data. Immigration is the thing that bothers them the most. Uh, and uh, Trump announced, uh, I'm talking about Mexicans as rapists and murderers. He was sending signals about his opposition to foreignness. You know, 37% of New York City is foreign-born. The elites of the country are conspiring to make this country more and more immigrant and foreign-born. Bo foreign uh, the cities are almost all controlled by cities. They're not enforcing immigration laws. Over 80% of uh, Chinese postgraduates stay in America. You know, despite the the need for comprehensive immigration reform, the elites are, have embraced America as a diverse immigrant country. Trump is fighting it, and he's going to lose dramatically. And the question then becomes, what happens with, after that kind of break? This isn't just a continuation. Something is going to happen <laughs> after having lost, having thrown everything at it. And that's why they've won so many seats in the off-year elections. You had to... You had to you had to become more and more intense in this battle, more and more ferocious, and more and more unified to stop this new American majority from governing. And only unity, that kind of intensity, would succeed. But you reach a point where it just can't, it crashes. And I think Trump represents the, you know, the heart of it. He was the one who was most anti-foreign, most anti-Obama, um, and willing to bring in economic issues as well. And, uh, but it, it won't just begin a new chapter. This will be a huge event.
Uh, you had a question? Oh, you've got yes, thank you. Ann Lester, uh, Head of Retirement Solutions for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Um, one thing that hasn't come up, and I'm a little surprised it hasn't yet, and maybe you alluded to it just now in your comments, Dan, um, relates to um, the sort of poisoning of the well of the vote being rigged and there possibly being a, an awful lot of people who literally don't believe the results. Mm -hmm. And some statistics that have been coming out about not just vis-a-vis -vis the vote, but lack of belief in government statistics and, you know, not believing anything they say. And I would couple that with a sort of wanting to believe a simple answer to a very complicated problem. So I guess a couple of questions. One, do you see that problem being resolved, as it were, by this generational shift you're talking about? And maybe this will be more painful and more prolonged than you are perhaps hinting at. Um, and, and secondly, what concrete things can policymakers or the elite do to address this and, you know, to talk to people? Because to me, that it's just kind of hard work in talking. Mm -hmm. I have one. Yeah, Heather. So um, thank you for that question, um, because it's a serious, serious uh, sort of headwind in our political discourse. Um, the lack of trust in the elites, which is mostly warranted, um, has, however, um, I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, right from Hurricane Katrina to the Iraq war to the financial crisis, I mean, the climate change, like, what do you want? I mean, like, you know, all the big problems we face are not being solved. Um, and the mistakes get bigger and bigger and more catastrophic. Um, and the sort of nakedness of the corruption and greed is just, um, just more and more evident. So, um, I do think that there is, and it's sort of like not polite to say this because, um, you know, we all go on cable news and, um, and uh, you know, the media is supposed to be the fourth estate. If you look at the stories that Fox News has told over the past, really since Obama, but before, um, all of the seeds of the Trump narrative were there. And the sort of crystallized narrative of, um, you know, wall-to-wall -wall coverage of every beheading all, anywhere in the world, um, of um, the sort of, it's like there are four stories and they're on a sort of, bored every day. And it's like, do we have one for this one? Do we have the one for black people are lazy and are cheating on the system? Yes. Do we have one for, you know, Islamic radical terrorism is the greatest threat? Yes. Do we have one for the incompetence of government? Yes. And one of the other ones is, do we have one for they're lying to you and they can't be trusted? And we are the only true source. Um, you know, it's been making the rounds a lot, but the McCain clip from the uh, 2008 um, uh, debate where he talked about ACORN and voter fraud, right? This is not a new thing that Donald Trump is saying by any means. It's something that has animated politics and policymaking since we elected our first African-American president. And it's on the news in some way or another on the most watched cable channel every single week. So I don't know what to do about that problem, right? Because I don't know if... Um, 
you know, the media really matters, and our most popular cable network really matters. And, I, I, and there's no policy response, I think, to changing the narratives um, from particularly that network. And it's okay if I never get invited back on and get after saying that. But it's really true. You, you can be on Fox. I've been on MSNBC. We can, you know, we can do that. I want to grab your, the point about the, the, the election being rigged, you know, that point. Because that's actually almost the end game of what they, been, what they did when they, came, when they won the off-year elections in 10 and 14. Each one produced a surge of ways to try to keep blacks and Hispanics from voting. Um, and the, their, their states were incredibly innovative and determined um, to drive people off roles and, the, and, and, and picture IDs is like the really the heart, the heart you know, of it. Um, now they've lost that in the court, but it's not going to go away as a big, big part of the picture on what, you know, how this election you know, is rigged. Okay. And f that is going to be critical for Republicans you know, I was on a panel with Whit Ayers and talking about what happens after the uh, election. He says Trump's going to be there afterwards. He's going to be out there. He's going to have a big, uh, you know, uh, voice. And he's going to be trying to delegitimate, you know, Hillary, um, you know, the way they tried to delegitimate Obama. And that's what he'll be doing. But the, the median age of Fox viewers is 69 so let's, let's, not, let's not lose track of what's happening in the country. You're going to have an election in which these, uh, all, these law, all these laws are going to be overturned by the courts and are not going to be operative um, in this election. You're going to have a Supreme Court that, is, that will throw out, we will no longer have a Supreme Court that is allowing what's happened on voting rights and on, on picture ID. You're going to see a shift in states. It was already happening. You know, we're ignoring the fact that these changes are happening in cities and states that deal with both participation, regulation of you know, reform, climate change. All of that can happen in the context of the court change. I'm just saying there's a story here that has a beginning and end. They tried to, to disenfranchise minorities in order to keep this new American party from governing. It's very likely that they will, when we will conclude on November 8th, that they lost. That chapter's over. It's not just that they didn't win this election. They can't go, that game is over. That card has been, that battle has been fought. They can, they can, we will be pressing for democratic participation at every level in the period after this election, and we'll have the ability to do it. So I have one really quick thing I want to throw in, besides being reminded of Larry Wilmer's joke about C-SPAN being the number one station for people who died watching TV <laughs> and have yet to be found. But now maybe Fox News is going to compete with C-SPAN. So Heather asked, about, Heather asked about policy. And I'm not sure what the policy is, but I think there's one like elephant in the room, and it's not the Republican Party, that we haven't talked about. And that is organizations, right? And the way in which people learn about politics today is so, is so much through these news, news media often self-selected. And in the, the old days, people were part of dense networks of organizations, voluntary organizations, unions, um, and the decline. I mean, Damon Silvers of the AFL-CIO is sitting over there, and so I, I have to, it's obligatory to mention how important unions were in letting people know about how policies affect them. And obviously, um, policies matter an enormous amount. We talk a lot about the elections, 
and they also reassured and got people about elections and got people out to them. But they also told them a lot about like, how their interests would be shaped. And then they lobbied and worked on the long term to try to shape po uh, policy. So one thing I just want to make sure that we keep in mind is that there's this tendency in the US, and understandably this year, to fixate on the, the spectacle of elections. But as anybody who spent time in Washington or state capitals knows, the politics of organized combat, of day-to-day -day struggle to try to get things done, is really where a lot of the action is on a lot of the issues we care about. And that's where I think we have to think about the long term. That's, I'm optimistic if we can start to reconstruct a denser organized and organized uh, middle-class democracy um, as opposed to the kind of politics of spectacle that we have right now. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'll just make two brief, brief comments um, there. So, you know, first is that I think the delegitimization of the election results is something that I worry a ton about. And I, you know, I write about this in the book, the delegitimization of the media and so forth, that really, really worries me. It has, I think, long-term consequences. Um, that said, I, I think that it's, it's important to sort of keep in mind that this is a sort of bi-directional problem here. So it's not just that the institutions maybe of the right are delegitimizing the media. It's also, if we're being honest with ourselves, I mean, you know, we made this point before about the failure of the elites from the Iraq war to the financial crisis. This failure to respect the media is not completely made up on a right-wing conspiracy website. The media has really not done a fantastic job of checking. I mean, the, you know, Trump's voters disproportionately likely to be veterans, disproportionately likely, consequently, to have fought in the Iraq war and to have suffered at the hands of the VA bureaucracy. When we talk about the Iraq war and the media's role in failing to provide any sort of reasonable check on what was happening from the left and the right, I, I think that, that it's important to sort of recognize that this, this delegitimization of the election results is a problem, but also that it's not totally something that's, that's made up, that the media and folks like us have to do a better job at earning people's trust. Yeah, there's one thing that's come up here, and Jacob, you, you talked about this, uh, the, the ways in which uh, people are upset because promises have not been kept and, and so forth. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to hold your feet to the realism fire, Stanley. But, uh, <laughs> I'm just talking but, but one of the, just I mean, data, so just data. Here's what, just one of the things that I run into, well, it's not all, not all data, mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things that I run into, and, and you all know, I've been very, very outspoken in uh, criticizing Trump, very active in Never Trump. Uh, and I get these emails and phone calls and, and nasty uh, letters and everything uh, about how I am going to uh, allow Hillary to do this to the court, you know, change the court, to which I always respond, you know, how exactly is she going to do that? Is she going to have 60 U.S. senators, which is what it will take? And so, you know, everybody's forgetting the fact that, you know, that the Congress makes those decisions. Presidents don't put anybody on the Supreme Court. They make a suggestion which they hope will be accepted, you know, or on the lower courts. Uh, and Hillary is just now starting to change her emphasis to going off into other states, looking at, you know, what she can do about Senate races, House races. But, but I watch all these people who are terrified of, of Hillary, who somehow has her own copy of the Constitution, that will allow presidents to do what all these previous presidents have been frustrated about the fact that they can't do. And uh, uh, at the moment, 
at the moment. At least one house of the Congress is still going to be Republican, maybe both. That you know, that's not certain. So, uh, I and the idea that Democrats will have 60 plus votes in the Senate seems a little far-fetched at the moment. So, um, I'm I'm perhaps less optimistic. You know, I, I I do think that people at the end of this election, no matter what happens, are going to say, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. We, they promised they didn't do what they promised because they can't do what they promised. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but and I should also throw in, yeah, I, I guess you know, uh, we, we do have this being video uh, live stream. So anybody, if you all get, you know, stuff from people who, you know, get in touch there who, who want to do this. So, so there were some more hands here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Rampell from the Washington Post. In our discussions about the system being rigged, the uh, elections being rigged, the economy being rigged, I'm wondering what does that do to American sense of agency? Um, to the ability to, to think that they can do something to improve their own lives. I mean, I, I, I will grant that the, the deck is stacked against many Americans um, economically and otherwise, but does being told that the system is rigged against you, you have no chance of winning, your candidate has no chance of winning, empower Americans or does it disempower Americans? So, um, yeah, no, sorry. Uh, I'll just be very something. quick, I'll be very quick. I think um, all of that narrative falls into um, a deep well of individualism and agency among Americans where it's very hard for us to actually think about systemic forces shaping our destinies, like that is not the way Americans, that's not the frame that we have traditionally had. Every ad tells us that we have the power to choose and shape our identity and everything. Like all of the other forces that are not political discourse are actually saying something different. So I think it's less of a risk if you sort of zoom back the lens to the American spirit of individualism and sort of um, fantasy, reality show fantasy world that we actually live in and how much of the commercial media requires us um, and is working very hard to make sure that we still feel like with that credit card or with that uh, cash, we can change everything about ourselves. So, so I just want to say that, and like Stan, I do like data. I'm reminded Bill Moyers once said that it's the mark of an educated man to be deeply moved by statistics. So, um, so Adam, Lev <laughs> Adam Levine of, Cor of Cornell University, not Maroon 5, um, <laughs> recent, has been doing this really interesting research on um, what he calls self-undermining rhetoric. And it's very relevant to us because he finds that when you talk to people about economic insecurity in these controlled settings where he's doing a treatment and a control group, um, it teams, tends to remind people of their financial and time constraints and make them less likely to participate in politics. So it's not quite your question, but he also did something just recently, a new paper, which is on inequality. He's also doing some of this around climate change. And what he finds is a lot of advocates speak in ways that it turns out when you test it, actually demobilize people. So what he did with inequality is he had a kind of message that said, you know, um, the rich are rigging the system, let's fight back on one hand, and the other one saying, you know, in, you know inequality is a problem, let's fight back. And there was just a very strong negative effect on people's sense of efficacy of this. So I think there is support for that, but I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen 
What I'm I would, taking, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no yeah. I'm taking the opposite bring the, direction. Bring, bring the data. <laughs> I'm taking the opposite direction with uh, with data, uh, because increasingly we we would present people with you know with um, policy agenda, economic policies, and people would would respond to it and look at it and say, oh, "Sounds good." All these politicians, it's you know they all you know, they all are telling you what you want to hear, and we're actually kind of disempowered by it. They just didn't believe, you know, they could do it. However, we began to explore reforming money in politics, transparency, and what people were giving, limits on what people can uh, give, um, effects on uh, regulation of lobbyists, uh, as part of the same package. And people became, <clears throat> became much more optimistic you know, in, in the groups, and we tested it quantitatively. That you know where you know where we where in the half sample where we had the reforming the money in politics, we both increased in, <clears throat> excuse me increased the vote and engagement, but Bernie Sanders was like a big test of it. Yeah, I mean, hmm? I mean he was but like. But you have a, to give a positive message. But I he, think that's the point that yeah, his work is it, suggesting. You can't just say you know there's this big problem that's. That, right. I he's think not, that's, that's that's the point. Yeah, he's not Trump, but he, but he, but, he, but he is saying the system is corrupted. But you can reform it. It was empowering, and people became engaged when it said you could change the way politics is done. Yeah. So, so Catherine, I mean, I really strongly agree that the the sort of question you've identified as a significant problem in American political discourse in 2016, and you know, there's a difference between I think feeling empowered over political choices and feeling empowered over your individual choices every day. And there are a lot of good, you know, nonprofit groups, churches in the United States, the historically black church, that is very good at striking this balance between recognizing the systemic barriers, but also saying you have individual agency and it matters. And my biggest problem with Trump, I mean, and there are many, many things to pick out, but my biggest problem with Trump is that his message to the right, especially the white working class of which I came from, is anti-conservative and in some ways anti-American. It's fundamentally that the deck is so, so stacked against you that unless I'm the president, nothing that you do will change your life's outcomes. I think it's wrong and I think it's very self-destructive. Very dangerous, I agree. Uh, yes. Yeah, um, I, I'm Damon Silvers. I'm with the AFL-CIO, as uh, Jacob said. Um, in this, earlier in this conversation, you all kind of, particularly Stan was talking, when you talk about demographic change, <coughs> counterposed sort of different categories, you know, millennials, uh, white working class people. Some, some white working class people are actually millennials. Yeah. There's sort of a cross-hatching of these things. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, that's really a commonplace thing right now where there's often this conversation as if the working class in the United States was predominantly white males. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in fact, it's majority people of color and women. Mm -hmm. With that as the factual predicate, do you think the Democratic Party should be a class party? And if it's not, what does that mean about, what, what does that make the Republican Party be? And how dangerous is that? Were you asking? <laughs> <laughs> when I listened to Didn't Nikki make... talk about the kind of a, a I'm, I'm, I think this is going to be a disruptive election in terms of um, what's going to happen both presidentially um, and, uh, and, in, uh, and in Congress, but also in pressures around the Republican Party to, to actually do things. There are two things that, however, there are two things that worry me in this. 
Um, I thought my, my, my scenario a year ago when I wrote my book, America Ascendant, was the, that Cruz would be the, would be the nominee as kind of the anti-establishment candidate. He'd represent the traditional values. He'd lose you know, badly as the new forces form the majority. Um, and, then, and then the process of change would come on the Republican side because the, the you know, you know, different currents would then challenge you know, that traditional base. And you would be able to actually begin to go back to some of these bipartisan deals that enable us to act in the national interest. The, there's two things now that, that worry me. One is because it has become, it, it, it's been so difficult to get to a big election. Um, you're, you're in, it's not that Hillary doesn't have a mandate. If you look at her agenda that she talked about when she announced on Roosevelt Island, it's a very bold reform agenda across many areas, um, from working you know, work family to a whole range of areas. Um, and yet she doesn't come in with this sense of momentum around that agenda. It's like barely mentioned at the end. And can you actually enact those things, even if you have the majorities, can you enact them if you haven't created the momentum and social forces that allow you to push you know, for change? But the other thing which is new to me is how big the shifts are on gender and class. What the Republican primary did was very dramatic. 60% of the Republican primary vote were white working class. And this was a battle between Cruz and Trump for the white working class. And the surprise was you could win not running on religious issues and win some of those voters. But it was a white working class primary. And college-educated voters amongst Republicans and broadly came to look at the Republican Party with great negativity. And there's been a major shift of college-educated voters to the Democrats. And it may be permanent. Mm -mm. And so you're, you're looking at a Democratic Party that in class terms afterwards will be complicated. It's, not gonna be, it's gonna be a very diverse Democratic Party that produces a Hillary Clinton victory. I, I think in terms of the Republican Party, I don't, I don't think that I uh, see quite the same scepter that, that you do. Uh, the, uh, I'm very engaged with a number of, uh, uh, of Republicans. You know, I, I wrote a letter condemning Trump as unfit, and I circulated it with, with a fairly limited number of email addresses I had, and I got 30 former Republican members of Congress to sign it oh, you know, overnight. Uh, and there are a number of us that are, are meeting, and I'm talking to a number, uh, about whether we recapture the party post-Trump. You know, the, the, those, those forces he's unleashed maybe somewhere, but we're talking about recapturing the party that's more of a Kasich party, uh, or whether, you know, we, we pull an Abe Lincoln and uh, we go back to Ripon, Wisconsin and, uh, uh, and create a new Republican party. But so I, I, don't, I don't see the future of the Republican party as just going down this uh, slide with, with Trumpism. I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, okay, can we have time for one? I, have, I just got zero minutes remaining, <laughs> so you can say everything you want, and, and whatever it takes, I'll call it zero. <laughs> yeah. So we're here to talk about reconnecting work and wealth, uh, and you know, I'm like many of you and many of the people in this room, uh, definitely just a policy, Washington policy elite, for better or worse, and. I think we walk around thinking 
that if we were able to achieve the kind of agenda that many of us think about, I know that Heather and Jacob and your think tanks work on, that, the re that, that would help to reconnect work, growth, prosperity, and, uh, and, and wealth for middle and low income people for the various demographic groups we're talking about. But listening to you, I can't get a feel for whether that would really scratch the itch that you've all been talking about and describing for the last 30 minutes. Suppose, do, do a thought experiment. Suppose Hillary Clinton was able to achieve uh, you know, a, a deep infrastructure a, a investment that, that, that created blue collar jobs, balanced work and family, um, re, reshaped trade agreements to be more worker and consumer sent, raise the minimum wage, strengthen the ACA, you know, get excess, uh, reduce excesses in Wall Street and, and money in, suppose this agenda were to, were to somehow come to pass and work and, 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 and growth connected to more broadly shared prosperity. What impact do you think that would have on the problems you've been describing? I think it would have a lot. I mean, and, and so I mean, I, I so you know, putting aside the real uh, the question of the realism of the scenario. I mean, to me, especially the last part about getting our political system working again, which is more than just money in politics, right? I mean, it's about trying to. It's it, it would take a lot, I think, to to do that. But that's sort of in in the most recent book I wrote with Paul Pearson. We talk a lot about how how could you make the system work better on a on a range of of, in a range of ways, you know, creating greater pressure for compromise, creating um, more um, representative outcomes with a broader voter turnout, more majoritarian processes that actually produce out, you know, produce legislation in Congress and so on. That's a big part of getting this first agenda right. And I do think that part of the disconnect is that Obama was able to accomplish uh, many big things, and you were there helping to do that, but. The political side, we know that we haven't fixed that problem, and so I think that that, if that was in conjunction with these policy changes, it would make a big difference. So that that's the first part, and the second part is I don't think we can think that we're going to get rid of um, you know right wing populism completely by doing these things. We know from countries that have much more extensive welfare states that they have rightist movements. Those rightist movements, generally speaking, and absent certain um, um, uh, conditions um, are generally not capable of, of capturing enough support to really govern, and they're also normatively shunned um, by the other major parties. Um, what's really distinctive is we have a rightist candidate, right-wing populist candidate, who's captured one of the two major parties in a two-party system. And, um, and I, so I think there will be a segment of the electorate, hopefully small and hopefully getting smaller, that will find attraction in some of the themes that we've talked about. But I do think that tackling these sort of fundamental problems uh, would have an enormous positive effect in people's lives and in our politics, if, especially if it went hand in hand, as I think it must, with the kind of political reforms you were talking about. Well, and, and some of it is election reforms. That's what my last book was, you know, about the primary system, the redistricting system. Yeah, yeah. There are ways that you can make changes that would, I think, change a little bit the nature of the people who are getting elected. <laughs> I think we're all, I mean, I think we're all thinking of it in these terms, and I, and I suspect you do too. These aren't just policies. And I mean, I think we are in a beginning of a reform era like the progressives. 
that be, took two that took two decades. Yeah. You know, for, uh, four elections. They went went from modest to bold, because the problems became more and more, more difficult. But it, but you got you got the more and more you know bolder and bolder re, uh, reforms. A lot of it was nurtured in the states uh, and cities, but by by Wilson's you know presidency, eventually it took Roosevelt to enact important pieces of it. I think we're. I mean, I know we're focused on this group of voters, but if. If I'm right, that that's, you know, the seculars, millennials, unmarried women, minorities are 63% of this electorate, they can be over 70%. They can be 75% of the next electorate. I mean, there's a new country there that is demanding change that's shaped by all the issues that we've talked about. And so I think we think that these won't just be policies. They'll be part of a, you know, a period where there's tremendous pressure to mitigate the, uh, the problems facing the country. I think it's built up, and that's why I think there's such frustration right now, and I think it's, it's blown. But it only will grow, the demand for change will only grow greater. Well, thank you all very much for putting up with us. Great panel for you guys, Thanks. terrific job. Thank you.